Well, it truly is an honor to be here. Um, we've been doing citywide events since 1990. Actually, I started in 1989 with things in my own community. Uh, so I know how hard it is to do that. I remember when, in 1990, I was going to plant two churches. Our church was about six years old. Um, you know, we had a lot of leaders raised up, and I was ready to, you know, expand it and have different plants all over the place. And I had a worship team ready. I had two places in New Jersey ready, uh, ready to go, probably a few weeks away from starting. And the Lord stopped me, and he said to me, the energy you were going to use to plant these two churches, I want you to wash the feet of the pastors in New York City and bring healing to my broken body that is divided. And from that point on, 50 to 80% of my time was given over to my city um, and uh, didn't focus, you know, maybe 30% of my time on the local church. And our church was used to that. Um, so I didn't do any hospital visits, no counseling. The only thing I did was meet with the leaders and preach, and that was it, and make sure things were going okay financially. Um, and out of that, we started a, a citywide prayer meeting called All City Prayer in 1991. It was probably the largest prayer movement in New York City uh, that New York City had seen. Um, it was like 12 leaders of some of the largest churches that came together, and then we had about 60 pastors committed to this. And we would come together for a day of fasting and prayer, several thousand at times. And... Um, Within about a year and a half, the crime rate of New York City dropped by about 40%. So you could document it from 1991 to 1993 to four. Um, and then eventually we merged with Concert of Prayer because I didn't even know anything about them. And we found out that they had started in 87. So I said, we're preaching unity. I don't want to practice disunity. So we were probably all charismatic and they were mostly evangelical. We just combined and uh, started one board and uh, work closely together. And, uh, and then out of that, you know, came so many different initiatives and reconciliation meetings, unity communion meetings. I remember one time we had the top 12 black and white leaders together in a room in 1995. They had never walked together, and God showed me to bring them together. And uh, the result of that very energized meeting, very intense fellowship, if you know what I mean, uh, was we had a 48-hour retreat. And after 48 hours, we came to the conclusion that the answer is having a friendship. And from that point on, myself and some of the key leaders in New York City have been working together. Um, and uh, 1999, we started a formal network of churches and leaders called Christ Covenant Coalition. It still goes on now. And We've expanded that to include a social and political movement and uh, regional prayer movements and different things like that. So um, I've definitely dove into this world that Pastor Rick is in, and um, you really got to give your life to it. Just getting leaders together is a full-time job. Uh, knowing how to make sure you deal with their assistance after they say yes, because they will never remember. And then once we had cell phones, you have to text them a hundred times and 
right before the meeting to remember there's a meeting, you know. Um, so you have to give your life to this. But I'll tell you, we've been so rewarded. Even our local church got so blessed in our, we have a large uh, nonprofit. We have about a thousand kids that we've been helping since 1980. And we've been so blessed because of that kind of unity. We met, uh, you know, the leader of World Vision in New York City and uh, they started off with a grant that began to multiply. And from that grant, we had full-time programs that just exploded with other grants and other grants and other partners. And all of that was only possible because of the cross-pollination of, of unity. And so uh, I'm really, really excited over what I see here. And I'm honored to be a small part of that. I'm so thrilled that uh, Kevin Palau is here and Luis and... Uh, we haven't had an expression of unity uh, at that magnitude since Billy Graham came in 2006. Um, and all of those meetings have to be a catalyst prophetically for an ongoing relational dynamic that never ends, uh, whether it's weekly pastors meetings and marketplace meetings or whatever, however God shows you to do it. Uh, but I just applaud what you're doing and Unless we take this stuff serious, we'll never get anywhere. And so I thank God for Luis Palau and Kevin, and um, I thank God for their mantle of authority, their convening ability, uh, which is an apostolic calling, not only evangelistic, to bring leaders together in a city. Um, and so I'm, I'm honored to be here, and I always forget this, so I'm actually proud of myself that I'm about to say what I'm gonna say. I brought books. I forgot to bring all of them. God has to give me a full-time assistant that'll travel with me. But I have four out of the seven with me, and uh, I'm not going to waste the time to talk about each one of them. Um, and uh, they're, they're very important books that, that can really help you in a lot of different ways. You could also get a free copy of my latest book called 12 Ways to Turn Failure into Success. You just go on my website, josephmatera.org or kingdomrevolution.us, and um, just myname.org. You can get a free book, and you could sign up for a weekly uh, teaching. It goes out to over 130 nations and thousands of leaders, and uh, there's also a daily blog on Charisma Magazine and, you know, other stuff. So you can connect to me on Facebook and Twitter as well through my website. Um, is probably something else I'm supposed to say, and I forgot what it is, but, uh, but I'll, that's about it for now. So what I want to do is just, uh, I'm never sure what to speak until I actually come to a place. And I have a sense in the spirit of, you know, the maturity, the diversity, and where everybody's at. And uh, um, what I'm going to do today, I'm actually surprised. I feel the Lord is showing me to teach on the 4R vision the number four, letter R, vision, which is the vision that we use to launch our newly formed United States Coalition of Apostolic Leaders. We're having our first national uh, conference that we're partnering with in Skyline Church, June 14th to the 17th. It's a future conference. We have like 52 speakers, and we're basically teaching on things pastors never deal with. And it's, if you go to, Sky, go to my website or go to uscal.us, actually, or Skyline, uh, you'll see the future conference there. So the 4R vision uh, is the mission or the vision of this national movement that we just launched. 
And if you are an apostolic leader, that is to say you have a network of churches or you have a very influential church in your community and or an emerging apostolic leader or marketplace leader, uh, and if you're interested, go to USCAL, USCAL.us, and you could um, check it out and apply. But uh, this 4R vision um, is the, the engine. Everything that we do, every conference, every leadership summit, every um, meeting that we have uh, has to do with either one of the four R's or all four. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a snapshot of these four R's, not to recruit you into U.S. Cal, but because I feel the Lord said you need to hear these four R's. Uh, so this is the first time I'm ever teaching this outside of the context of one of our U.S. Cal meetings, which I've only done it once uh, in a U.S. Cal meeting. And so, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you'd give us your wisdom and understanding, that you'd help us to drill down deep and to um, go as far as you want us to go in regards to unity, in regards to understanding your body. And we thank you for the great things happening. We pray you'd bless that and feed into that even further now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the 4R vision would be this. The first R is the restoration of the church to the way of Jesus and the apostles. The restoration of the church to the way of Jesus and the apostles. The second R is reconciliation amongst ethnic leaders and or associations, denominations, and movements. The third R is the revival of the church. And the fourth R is reformation of society so that we can have flourishing cities and communities and nations. And so I want to get into the first R. Now, because I was told that this is largely pastors and leaders, uh, sometimes in conferences I'll deal with the kingdom of God, but I'll be a lot more pastoral and not as deep, but more you know, motivational. I'm going to drill down a little deeper uh, assuming that you have a really good understanding of scripture and somewhat of church history. Uh, so I'm going to proceed from that assumption. So the first R, the restoration of the church to the way of Jesus and the apostles, uh, essentially there's an amazing move of God that is global, that has been taking place since the turn of the 20th century. It was documented uh, by Philip Jenkins in The Next Christendom, so I would encourage you to read that book. Uh, who's a Christian sociologist. I think he's in Penn State. I'm not sure where he is, but he wrote that book. And uh, this movement that has taken place would be classified as a global apostolic movement. Some would say apostolic. And uh, the reason why this has been uh, something that has caught the attention of uh, missiologists, sociologists, and uh, people in the body of Christ is because it is not led by a denomination anymore. It is, it is an apostolic movement. And by apostolic, in this particular context, it's very similar to here. You might have denominational leaders here, um, so it's not anti-denominational. But it is not sectarian or denominational in a sense that uh, people are coming together for voluntary associations behind an apostolic visionary, in this case it would be Rick McInnes, 
And uh, they would come together to do kingdom works, whether it's prayer, whether it's reconciliation, whether it's evangelism, whatever it is. This movement is exploding globally, especially since 1950. Um, and so if you examine what's going on in China, you examine what's going on all over Asia, uh, in Africa, in uh, Latin America, you will find that this is an amazing uh, movement and phenomena that is trans-denominational. It's not anti-denominational. It's trans-denominational. Um, and it is a movement uh, that is reminiscent in many ways of the early church or the first century church. And so as we try to understand where we're at today with all the expressions of Christianity, uh, let me just back up a little bit and to show you how profound this movement is. And that's why we call it a, a restoration of the way of Jesus and the apostles. And so if we understand the Roman Catholic expression of the body of Christ today, uh, they had its roots in the Western medieval model of the church, which started, uh, you know, arguably between the 6th century, 8th century on until the Protestant Reformation. So the roots of modern Catholicism, really when you look at the extra biblical literature, church canons, uh, Apocrypha and uh, different things that they are uh, using in the church traditions that in many ways, depends on who you talk to, is equal to the authority of Scripture. The root is not in the first century church that had only the Bible as their authority or their foremost authority of the, uh, of the old first and second testament. Of course, the first test, second testament is being written at that point. And so the roots of Roman Catholicism uh, was Western medievalism. Uh, that era. When we think about the Eastern Orthodox Church of today, which is the second largest expression of the body of Christ, I think it has about 500 million, uh, may have even more than that now, um, their roots were in uh, most likely the third and fourth century on in Constantinople and in uh, theologians that came out of Alexandria like Oregon and Clement and others. And so you could look at the roots of Eastern Orthodoxy uh, starting around the 3rd and 4th century. Um, if you want to look at the roots of modern evangelicalism, especially fundamentalism, uh, Presbyterianism, a reformed camp, um, and those kind of non-charismatic um, expressions of the body of Christ, uh, you could go starting with the modern Protestant Reformation that started in 1517. And so that would be the roots of the modern uh, movement uh, that gave birth to a lot of independent movements, denominations, the Baptists and the uh, Reform, the Presbyterians, and you can go on and on and on with that. Um, and then uh, well, we want to uh, know the roots of the modern revivalistic evangelical movement, which many charismatics would fit that, probably most of us would fit that in many ways, the revivalistic movement. Uh, the roots of that started in the 17th century with Nicholas von Zinzendorf in the pietistic movement where they were uh, sick and tired of dead formalism and creedal Christianity and they started practicing uh, an experiential faith where they had an assurance of foundation, an assurance of salvation as their foundation, the witness of the spirit and out of that there was a strong understanding of a personal relationship with God. That was the roots of uh, the ministry that came out of that, John Wesley, who was influenced by Zinzendorf, who John Hoos was his spiritual mentor, even though he wasn't alive at the same time. 
and that developed into the Moravian movement. Uh, they influenced John Wesley and George Whitfield, and they really took it to another level of revivalism. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, and then in the next, that started the first Great Awakening, the second uh, Great Awakening, Charles Finney. All of this came out of the Zinzendorf movement of pietism. Uh, and then we have modern-day evangelicalism and revivalism uh, that you have Billy Graham, uh, uh, you know, you have the Dwight O. Moody's, you have all these great uh, revivalists, uh, I'm sure Luis Palau would fit that, that come into this category. Um, and then you have the liberal arm of the church. Uh, some of them are believers, some of them are definitely not believers, so I hesitate to say an expression of the body of Christ, but the liberal arm of, uh, or expression or identification of the church started during the Enlightenment in the 16th and 17th century. The father of that would be Friedrich Schleiermacher, and he was a guy who basically had an encyclopedic concept of combining anthropology, sociology, and uh, philosophy with theology, all of them equal or even more important than scripture. And his view is that culture dictated uh, the interpretation of the Bible, not vice versa. And out of that came something by uh, a guy named uh, uh, Dr. White, who started something called process theology, which was almost like a Darwinian understanding of theology where uh, the scripture evolves with culture because God is still learning. God is evolving. Uh, and the, the father, that's the father of modern-day open theism, which Greg Boyd and others are espousing. And so uh, there is, uh, God doesn't know all of the future, and there is, a, there is an understanding of Scripture that evolves, and that's why we can't think of human sexuality the same way as the Bible taught us in Ephesians uh, according to marriage or according to human sexualities as defined in Romans 1 and so on and so forth because in those days that was their view but now culture is more enlightened. So the enlightenment influenced theology through this man and then others took off and took it a whole other direction to where they're denying the resurrection of Christ. I don't even know why they even bother calling themselves Christians or theologians. And so that's the modern day uh, a liberal camp that is denying the authority or the biblical inerrancy of scripture. And then you have the uh, holiness movement of the 19th century. A lot of them were the Methodists, uh, and it was a strong movement towards holiness. The Keswick Convention started uh, in the early 20th century or late 19th century, and that became the modern roots of Azusa Street. Many of the people in the holiness movement were involved in the Azusa Street Revival, so the roots of the Pentecostal and then Charismatic movement is the holiness movement of the 19th century. And so uh, we can go on and on with all this stuff. I said all that to say this, the apostolic movement, its roots are in the New Testament. I just dropped you with a bomb. It's the only movement and one of my friends who used to be a cessationist that is said didn't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, actually was converted to an understanding of the apostolic because he said, when I view global missions, if the Pentecostals are of the devil, then the devil is fighting against himself because that's the only expression in the church that's really growing globally, not in the U.S., but globally. 
And so the roots of the apostolic movement started with the way of Jesus and the apostles. And this is an expression of that. And I'm really, really excited because I understand that uh, if we don't get back to the simplicity of the apostolic church and stop putting a lot of these other things in the same level as scripture, if we don't get back to that, we will never have the apostolic results. So I really believe we are witnessing a modern-day restoration of the way of Jesus and the apostles. And as I said, it's not anti-denominational because denominations will come in and learn and grow from this, and they are, from this phenomena. Um, but it is something that is uncontrollable. It's, 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 a, it's an amazing movement that nobody can stop. It's a tidal wave right now. Um, and the apostolic movement in the U.S. is actually weaker than it is in many other places of the world except for Western Europe. So we're lagging behind. So these things that you guys are doing are very inspiring and great signs. The second R, and there's so much more I could, you know what, let me just say this just to, before I move on. Other things about the uh, apostolic movement is we do believe in the five-fold ministry, not the three-fold ministry of Ephesians 4.11. That is to say we believe in five-fold apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. Now myself and those who work with me, we don't call ourselves apostles and we don't make a big deal of title. We're talking more about the function. Uh, uh, so if you need a title to va validate yourself, I'm not judging you, but uh, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, I think what validates you is your ministry, your anointing, and most importantly, the fruit of the Spirit. So um, that is an important element, as well as the set one principle of someone who God sets first in the church apostles, uh, and then also fivefold New Testament government, which has to do with the recognition of a multiplicity of ministries. So it's not a one-man show. It's not just a bishop. But uh, as the elders develop in a new church plan, you, you eventually have a multiplicity of ministries. So you have uh, an apostle or a bishop or uh, the lead pastor, whatever title you have, and you work as you are now the first of, of you are the, the first among equals of an eldership team. So you're not working alone. There is a strong team, and you try to work through consensus. Otherwise, your elders never develop. If you just tell them what you want to do, and you don't bring them in as part of the process, you'll never have the ability to plant churches out of your own house and develop leaders because they don't think, they just obey. So that's also part of the, the restoration of the church. The second R is reconciliation. Now, um, when it comes to reconciliation, we have to understand again some of the history of that uh, when it comes to denominations. When the East and the West split around 1034 AD, it did not divide the church uh, beyond those two splits. Uh, it was just the Orthodox Church on one hand and the Roman Catholic on another hand. And that was brewing for many years, but officially there was a split. But the church did not fragment. Why didn't it, didn't it fragment? Because both parties still recognized what we call the episcopate. They had bishops that held the church together. You hear what I just said? So when Martin Luther came out with his Reformation, they didn't believe in bishops. They just believed in pastors and teachers and elders and deacons. And what happened was cataclysmic because without the bishops holding the diocese, 
the parish, the metro metropolitan bishops holding you know, the city together. Without that understanding of church government, the church spiraled into mass fragmentation. And now everybody had an independent autonomous church unless they became part of a, the Lutheran or uh, you know, the, um, uh, some of the Presbyterian or whatever. But there was no theological foundation for uh, unity beyond a local church. And that's why today we have thousands of denominations. Um, and so I'm not getting into the validity of whether you should have a bishop or not. I'm just stating a fact that that's why the 1034 split did not result in mass fragmentation, but the Protestant Reformation, which I believe God did bring, uh, I wish he brought it differently, but that's a whole other story. Uh, I wish they could have reformed the church and not split it, but, uh, but that resulted in mass fragmentation. And I believe what God is doing today as part of the restoration, he's beginning to bring unity amongst the whole body of Christ. Um, it's not an accident that you even see the Pope meeting with evangelical leaders and different leaders. I'm not saying we should all become under the authority of the Pope, because I wouldn't sign up for that. Uh, there's a lot of things that we disagree with, but somehow or another, maybe it's going to be persecution, God is going to reconcile his people. Now, when we think about what God's view of that, we have to look at the Shemar of Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God is one, Echad, um, which is what Jesus was referring to in John 17, verse 20 to 23. He said that we prayed that we would be one. His concept of oneness had to do with the Shema, had to do with the oneness of God, which is a plural, Elohim. It's a plural oneness, uh, which was different from unity. See, what we're thinking today is unity, but God wants us to do oneness. Okay? Unity is ad hoc. We come together for events. We don't have any skin in the game. We just come and we pray together. We do reconciliation. We might do some evangelism. We might even do some in Central Park together. But you know what God is after? God is after oneness. Jesus prayed not that we would have unity, but he said that we would be one as the Father is in him and he's in the Father. That unity was so strong that when three persons appeared to Abram in Genesis 18, he addressed them as Lord. Three persons were addressed as Lord. The two shall become one flesh in marriage. That has to do with a unity that is so deep that we become one heart, one mind, one vision, one language. It's not uniformity, it's diversity coming together Distinct. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have different jobs, different tasks. They're distinct. They come together, and that's the only kind of, uh, how would I say, it's the only kind of unity, the only essence that will result in the full synergy that God wants to release on the earth to bring systemic change and cultural change and to heal the body. And so we need to have a theology of oneness, and I challenge you to study the Shema, uh, Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our own image, and uh, different aspects of that word. And uh, what does Jesus mean by that oneness? And uh, today, our churches are divided among ethnic lines. Sometimes 
the church has to have a black church because only black people in the neighborhood. Sometimes it has to be a white church or a Chinese church because nobody else speaks Mandarin. But there are many churches that are in multi-ethnic communities that are divided, and that is a shame. Furthermore, there are leaders who don't even network together, uh, and that is a shame. And so God is calling for us to transcend ethnicity. It's not an Afrocentric gospel. It's not a Caucasian-centric gospel. It's not a Latino-centric gospel. It's not a Catholic-centric, Roman Catholic-centric, or Orthodox-centric. It has to be based on a high view of Christ, a Christocentric understanding that he said, I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. It's about being his. And he says, they will know that you are my disciples, not disciples of the Baptist church, the Roman Catholic, but my disciples, if you have love for one another. And he's referring to an ethos of oneness, not just ad hoc unity. And so there's more I could say about that. I'm just praying that God tells me what not to say than what to say. So, uh, and so I'm going to move on before I get into any trouble here. But uh, I really believe, even if our own particular church can't be multi-ethnic, we as leaders, and not just multi-ethnic, trans-denominational, I still have pastors that get upset at me that uh, the Cardinal Dolan invites me to meetings once in a while. I mean, I don't know what age people are living in. I really don't. This is not the dark ages. Um, I love my, I've met some on fire Catholic brothers and sisters that are doing amazing work. Um, I love the Anglican communion. They're the church, as far as I'm concerned, especially in England, uh, and what they've done recently in starting a branch here. Uh, I love the Orthodox Church. I spend time with some of my Orthodox priest brothers and talk about the works of the Apostolic Fathers. They love it. I mean, they go a little too far. A lot of them put it at the same level as Scripture. But, you know, we think sola scriptura means don't read church history. Don't read the writings of the Fathers. Most charismatics and Pentecostals don't even know what the Nicene Creed is, for crying out loud. The, Martin Luther and John Calvin knew church history. They quoted the Fathers. When they said, by the Bible alone, they weren't referring to just me and the Bible and the Holy Spirit. They had a vast understanding of church history that informed them. Jesus has been building his church for 2,000 years. And if we don't know church history, we're insulting the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, apostles didn't just start coming in the year 2000. Prophets didn't just start coming in 1980. If you read church history... They had the functionality, it never, and five-old ministry always took place. John Calvin and Martin Luther were apostles, if I've ever heard of one, and also prophets. Finney was, an, was probably a prophet more than an evangelist. They didn't have the title, but to say that now we are the ones bringing that, I think that is the height of hubris and assumption. Uh, and so as we read church history, see there's nothing new under the sun. We need to understand what God has been doing so we understand what we should respond, how we should respond. We should be informed by church history as well as what God is doing in our community. And that's why it says in Hebrews 12 that we are surrounded by a cloud of many witnesses. 
That means the church in heaven, the ones who've gone on to be before us, are watching somehow. They know what's going on. We're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. That means God has made us one. The First Testament saints, the Second Testament, and never mind the church of the past. We don't even know the pastor down the block. So we don't even know the contemporary church. So how in the world are we going to have enough footing for the future? So again, what you guys are doing is, I don't know if you understand, I don't understand the vastness of how important it is. Uh, so we need to continue working through this. And if it was easy, then everybody would be doing it. We got to sacrifice our egos and logos, put them, park them at the, at the gate when we come in. Jesus said in John 17 that we'd be perfected in this unity. The word perfect means maturity, maturity, teleos. That means you cannot grow as a Christian, just you and your Bible and the Holy Spirit. You can't just grow a Bible studies. That's why you can only grow in the context of hard relationships. You only mature in unity. So when it comes to marriage, when you get married, you just came to God's school, one-on-one of maturity, you're going to survive. Having children, it's another school. Having a church, it's another school. To send somebody out of your local church to be trained to be a pastor, and they come back with a PhD just because they put a thesis together, and they've never proven what they've written in the context of a community of faith is also crazy. That's why seminaries which only are 200 years old, really. I mean, I don't even want to get into that. <laughs> Probably less than 5% of people who graduate seminaries have a successful church ministry. I don't say full-time ministry because to me, everybody's in the ministry, not just pastors. And so we need to get back to the way of Jesus and the apostles. We need to start mentoring, training people in the context of the local church. And we need to understand that uh, we need to honor unity and pastors will grow if they begin to work together. They'll be challenged. Not everyone's going to have the same eschatological belief, the same belief with water baptism, the same belief on, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, millennialism and, and different things like that, uh, or Israel and, and the church. So we need to learn to love each other, dialogue, try to help each other theologically, yes, but work together and major on the majors and not major on the minors. And God is doing that, and he could only do that and perfect the church as we work together as different congregations. There's only one church per city in the New Testament. And if Jesus was to come to your city, as he came to seven cities in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, who would he give the letter to? You see, he said, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. There are some things God cannot say to a Lone Ranger pastor. Because he says he wants to speak it to the city, to the churches. In the context of one church, one city. And so, there are certain things God cannot say to Connecticut unless there's someone he could bring a letter to, or unless there's some kind of unity in each community, in each town, or each village, whatever you live in, city. 
And so there are certain things I might be praying for months, and I always spend a lot of time in prayer, but there are times God doesn't say anything to me for three, four months, personally. As soon as I pray with my wife, boom, he starts talking. As soon as I show up at a pastor's prayer meeting, boom, he starts talking. As soon as I pray in my own church with other leaders, he starts talking. Why? Because in myself, I'd rather be just me and God. He knows that if it was up to us, we'd isolate ourselves. Some of the greatest things God wants to say, he's never even said it to you because you don't have the unity. It's actually holding back our destiny. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Someone say churches. That's plural. And he was saying it to the church of Smyrna, Ephesus, Thyatira, Philadelphia, uh, Laodicea, so on and so forth. And so there was a vehicle to get that letter out, and there was also some kind of unity there. I believe the greatest things God wants to say, and even our destiny depends on it, based on our unity. The third R is revival. I think a lot of us know about revival, the importance of revival. Uh, just in the 20th century alone, the Azusa Street Revival, the Latter Rain Movement of the 1940s, 1948 that started in Canada, uh, that brought back the understanding of fivefold ministry in the kingdom of God and prophetic presbytery. And then you had the charismatic movement uh, where the Roman Catholic Church and all the denominational Protestant churches started getting hit with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Uh, and then you had the Word of Faith movement in the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, an understanding of cell groups and uh, megachurch uh, things that were able to disciple uh, from Yonggi Cho uh, these masses that were getting saved. And uh, then we have in Africa and Latin America incredible revivals that are going on that we don't even have an understanding about. In China, in 1949, before the Iron Curtain fell, there was one million Christians in China. And after they threw out all the Western missionaries, the church exploded, and now there might be 100 million. Uh, there's a lot behind that statement, too. After they threw out the Western missionaries, the church exploded. So... Uh, there's an amazing understanding right now today of revival. But I'm going to jump to the fourth R because I think that's where we're really missing it. In my book, Ruling the Gates, I document why revival is not enough. And I know I said that once to a national revivalistic meeting, uh, a leader, and it was almost like I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. I mean, because we were coming together and we were praying, and we are praying for revival, praying for revival, and God brought me into the message of the kingdom of God in 1995, and I just totally started reading the Bible with a kingdom lens. And, uh, and you know, still a revivalist. I still believe, obviously, in winning souls in prayer and the move of the Holy Spirit and, and all of that. Uh, but God expanded that for me in 1995. And I remember raising my hand as we were with this national leader, and he was urging us to pray for revival. And I said to him, uh, revival for what reason? He didn't know how to answer me. Uh, what, what do you mean, revival? Revive and assumes the church is dead. Okay, so we're waking up the church to do... Do we just want to have large churches? Do we just want to have Holy Ghost parades on Sunday? We just want to encourage people to come to get slain in the Spirit? Get a word? 
This guy didn't know how to answer me. And uh, I was polite. I'm a very nice guy, even though I may not seem that way. And I, I really didn't try to get into any theological debates. I just behaved myself. God had a... But um, sometimes you do more harm than good, even though you might be right. So in that point, I was better to keep quiet and not say anything else. So basically, um, I have done a lot of traveling, and I'm just going to give you uh, some examples. I've been to... Uganda. I have a network of about 1,500 to 2,000 churches that I work with. Uh, sometimes I'm there twice a year, and I'm training them on the kingdom of God. Now, let me tell you something about Uganda, and especially Kampala. You cannot teach, you don't have to teach them anything about revival. You don't have to teach them anything about large churches. One of my friends has a church. His building is bigger than Madison Square Garden. You don't have to teach them anything about the need for prayer. The last two years, I've been invited to speak in a, uh, a stadium of 70 to 100,000 people during an all-night prayer meeting in which there were four to six going on at the same time. If we had two Yankee stadiums filled with prayer, it wouldn't equal what they have in one city in just one day. Um, I declined the invitation because that was the time I spent with my family, which is always going to be first unless an angel appears to me. But uh, I go there a lot, and man, it's amazing. However, 80% of that country has no, hot wa no running water or electricity. The country only has 10% of their population that claim to be Muslim. But the Muslims have far more political influence and far more money. They have most of the businesses. Why? Because the Quran does not make a distinction between their religion and politics and society in general. Somewhere down the road, about 150 years ago, and it's in my book, Ruling the Gates, right after the Civil War, the church separated the gospel from the kingdom. And now we're left with good news. When you separate the gospel from the kingdom, you have good news for an individual. But you're not obligated to serve humanity anymore. The theme of the New Testament is not the church, and it's not just the gospel. It's the kingdom of God. When Jesus, Jesus told us to pray in Luke chapter 11, he didn't say to pray for the church to come and his will to be done. He said for his kingdom to come. The church is not the kingdom of God. I know the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church would disagree with me, and some others would. The church is not the kingdom of God. It can't be, because it says in the scriptures, so many scriptures. I mean, just go to Psalm 22 to start it off. Do Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 4. The kingdom of God says rules over all. And it's not even just talking about the earth. It says the earth is his footstool. The kingdom of God is the rule of God that emanates from the throne of God that is in heaven. The kingdom of God is God's government over the cosmos, over the whole universe. And so the church is not the kingdom, but is the main agent of the kingdom, bringing God's rule on the earth to every aspect of society. Jesus looks at every aspect of culture, whether it be a sewer system, whether it be the Pythagorean theorem of geometry, or whether it be worship music, and he cries out, Mine! If he's not Lord of everything, he's not Lord at all. When he 
said that he is the way and the truth and the life, the word truth did not just mean Bible passages. It meant that he is the true light, John 1, 5, and 6, that gives light to every man coming into the world. Doesn't he mean just Christians? Nobody could come up with any kind of truth outside of his common grace, outside of his blessing. That's why he says, I'm the light of the world. Greek word for world is cosmos. It means not just the individual people, but the systems that support the people. He's the light of economics. He's the light of government. He's the light of education, the light of philosophy, the light of music, art, entertainment. He's the light of sociological studies. He's the light of all of that. Doesn't mean everybody's listening to him, but he's giving them the grace or the ability to even have the gifts to begin. As a matter of fact, an atheist has to borrow from theism to prove his atheism. Because their worldview doesn't have the goods to even justify grammar or categories, classifications, or even language. As soon as they debate, they've lost the debate if they understand the assumptions involved. And so we have to understand that the kingdom of God is the rule of God that emanates from the throne of God. The church is not the kingdom. The church is in the kingdom, is the main agent of the kingdom, bringing God's rule in every aspect of culture. That's why we have to stop saying, pastors have to stop saying, I've been in full-time ministry 35 years. Oh, so the economist isn't in full-time ministry? So the architect? How about the mother or father? Oh my God, there's no harder ministry than that. Right? Uh, when we understand the kingdom of God, we realize that it takes everybody to reflect God, to fill up all things. And so the fourth R is reformation of society. And when we think about reformation of society, again, this is one of those subjects I have to pray about what not to say instead of what to say, because this is my ministry. I could teach on this for 45 hours without stopping. But I want to read something from Isaiah chapter 2. It's uh, replicated again in, in uh, Micah chapter 4. And I know we talk about seven mountains a lot. But I challenge my brothers who teach that. You talk about seven mountains, what does transformation mean? What does it look like? And then we have to ask ourselves the question, by what standard do we measure transformation? Well, I believe God gives it to us in Isaiah chapter 2. This is what it looks like. And by the way, as Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, John the Baptist preached the gospel of the kingdom, you read the book of Acts and all of Paul's messages, he's constantly saying, I'm teaching the things concerning the kingdom. The theme of the first and second testament is the kingdom of God. They were interested in bringing God's rule back. Jesus as this last Adam, not the second Adam, because then they make room for a third and fourth Adam, the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, shows, and if he's called the last Adam, that you can't even understand his ministry if you don't understand the original covenant of creation, which is Genesis 1, 26 to 28, that many theologians or scholars call the cultural mandate. And what was that mandate? To bear fruit, multiply, uh, replenish the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the created order. The word replenish, the Hebrew root word for replenish is to sanctify or to make holy. It didn't just mean making a lot of babies and filling up the earth. It implied that these babies would take the earth back, which also implied there were enemies during the time of Adam. 
stuff that we can't even wrap our brain around. Have dominion over who? Subdue who? Take the earth back from who? So uh, I don't even venture to go there. I don't have a clue what that means. I just know what it says. And uh, so that meant that they kept their children in the faith. They trained them up to be leaders. Those children went out. So you can't separate marriage and family from, from transformation. And they subdue the earth and have dominion. And so Jesus came as the last Adam to fulfill what the first Adam failed to do. His call was that dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over creep, every creeping thing. That is to say the created order. There were no people. There were no nations. So he just used the created order. Once God got more specific, where he had her restarted with Noah, Genesis 9, 1 and 2. He told Noah the same thing he told the first Adam. He got more specific with Abram. And he told Abram, I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's Genesis 12, 1 and 2, which shows that the way God was going to bring dominion was through families. And uh, Genesis 17, he said to Abram, that out of your loins, kings and princes will come. And so that means out of his loins, we're going to be leaders of nations. That's what kings means. Leaders of culture, leaders of... Uh, every aspect of culture. And so when Jesus came, he was coming to recommission the church to do what the first Adam failed to do, and now there are nations, there are Gentiles, there's Jews, there's all of this stuff going on. So what did Jesus say? As the last Adam in Matthew 28, 18, he said, all authority has been given to me both in heaven and in earth. He didn't say some authority. He didn't just say ecclesial authority. He didn't just say the kingdom of God is in the church. He said all authority. A-L-L. -L. What's the Greek word for all? It's all. Everything. That means it's mathematics. That means it's every aspect of culture. It means it's science. It's philosophy. That means it's uh, as much in the world as it is in the church. He said all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations. The Greek word nation has been interpreted by those who separated the gospel from the kingdom as an individual ethnic. But if you look at the Greek word nation, it means a people group. That is to say, he was saying, I want you to take the Bible and I want you to use it as a blueprint to disciple whole nations. Disciple nations. Then he says, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, meaning you've got to go back to the Ten Commandments as a blueprint to disciple a nation. That's a whole nother conversation. And so you look at his moral laws that weren't done away with, and you understand ceremonial law has been done away with in Christ. But the moral law is still in effect, quoted numerous times in the New Testament as a standard of righteousness in which we can understand how we should live in the church, but also how to disciple nations. Jesus talked about discipling nations, Matthew 28, 19. That was fulfilled within three to 400 years after the Roman Empire broke up and the barbarian tribes came in, whole tribes. Once they saw their king like Alagoth get saved, any of their kings got saved, their whole tribe would be baptized at once. Whole nations were baptized and converted. Now, we could debate the validity of that, but 
We have to understand one thing. You can't understand the Second Testament if you don't understand the First Testament, especially starting with Genesis 1.28. So as we conclude this and I read this, um, it says in Isaiah 2, verse 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord or the mountain of the assembly or the temple of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. So we see here the mountain of the Lord, which is the government of God, is higher than all the mountains. So picture the seven mountains of culture, the nine mountains, whatever you want to call it. The mountain of the house of the Lord is higher than all the other cultural mountains. And it says it's the mountain of the house or the mountain of the temple of the Lord, which in my opinion means the church is not in one of the seven mountains. I know a lot of my friends, and I've debated them on this, they put the church in the mountain of religion. I said, I am not in the same mountain as the Buddhists and the Muslims. I'm sorry. That could include nominal, non-believing Christians, but uh, it says the mountain of the house of the Lord, which puts the church in the kingdom mountain, the church becomes an equipping center, and out of that mountain, we send people out to affect every other mountain. And by the way, we have found in Uganda and Latin America and all these countries that just because you have mega churches and revival, it doesn't mean you're going to change culture. Why? Because if you're not reaching the top gatekeepers of culture, the 3% that make decisions to the other 100%, the 97% of the people, if you don't reach those gatekeepers and or raise up your children, as Genesis 1.28 applies, uh, implies, with the next 10 or 20 years to be those gatekeepers, unless we affect the gatekeepers of culture, we will never change culture. So when we separated the gospel from the kingdom, we dealt with individual demons, but we left systemic devils alone. Uh, we cast demons out of people, but God has called us to displace them out of systems. We are called to affect every aspect of culture. And unless we embrace the full gospel, we still cast out demons, we still win people to Christ, we still heal the sick, there's nothing more important than winning people for eternity. However, one of the greatest evangelistic things we'll ever do is begin to apply the gospel in every aspect of culture because then we will have an evangelistic reach in every high place. We'll be able to change culture and we'll be able to affect every aspect of life. Uh, one small segment of our population Less than 1% of the population are identified in this segment. Took over one gate, media, and they have now changed all the laws. The church thought they could do it just by winning elections. That's probably the least of all the cultural gates. If we don't start dealing with music, art, entertainment, philosophy, history, and just having better ideas than anybody else, where everybody in the world starts coming into church like they used to, to learn how to compose music, to learn how to produce the greatest scientists. God has called the church to have the greatest problem solvers the world has ever seen. And as I end, I want to read this. He says, The mountain of the house of the Lord be raised or established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that, he may, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law. So we're going to learn God's ways through God's law. That has to do with civil society. That's the context. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so God's view of transformation 
is not ambiguous. It shows that God is also looking for the culmination of everything is going to be institutional conversion, not just individual conversion. The church is the hope of the world. We're called the light of the world, the salt of the earth, not the politicians. If we lose our salt, there is no hope. God has called us to reach the nations. And God's definition is very clear. It's based on the nations said, teach me his law. The Ten Commandments is God's standard of ethics. If you say, and the church runs from that, if you don't have God's law as our standard of transformation and ethics, then my question to you is, as I close, then by whose standard? Sigmund Freud, the Greek philosophers, the case study laws of judges, whose opinion? It's either God's standard of ethics or the world's. I'm going to go with God's. And as we begin to understand this, we are serious about transformation and serious about discipling the next generation of leaders. We need to teach them how to apply every ten of the Ten Commandments to civic society. That's why you have 613 civic laws that we study. We don't apply it exactly, but we study as principles that came out of the Ten Commandments, and we begin to study that so that we have an understanding how we are going to rule or how we're going to lead in political and economic and public policy realms and all that. So there's a whole mouthful on that which uh, I wouldn't dare get into now. And so I actually have two minutes left. Um, If we think that we're just going to change society with big churches, well, we've been there, done that. Look at Houston, Texas. Biggest church in American history, several mega churches, and look who they elected as a mayor. Look what the city council's trying to do. Guatemala, maybe 70% of the people in that country are born again. They have mega churches all over. And yet they lead Latin America in homicides. Puerto Rico, maybe 50% of the people there are born-again believers. Percentage-wise, they're a small island, but percentage-wise, they lead Latin America in divorce and in AIDS. There is no correlation between church growth and quality of life change in our communities unless we begin to connect the good news to the kingdom, we'll continue to have Holy Ghost parades in buildings and never see systemic change. I think God has called us to see communities flourishing, communities change, communities one for Christ, and see the difference in every aspect of life. How many believe that? And I believe that this is clearly what God is after. God bless you.